this thing called rest. Okay? Well, let's, um, let's start by talking about our problems with rest. Did you know that we have flawed thinking about rest and relaxation and sleep? Did you know that? That your thinking is wrong in probably many ways about this topic? Uh, I want to give you four areas where it's most common that we're flawed in our thinking. Okay, uh, I'm assuming all of you will agree with at least one of these, but maybe you'll agree with more than one. Uh, one of our flawed views of rest is that the opposite of rest, busyness, equals value. That if we're busy, if our schedule's full, then we're more valuable than if we're more at rest. It's a pretty common one. Uh, we live in a state of industry, right, here in Utah. Uh, we're, we're known for just putting our hand to the plow. And we can believe that the opposite of rest actually increases our value as members of society and as children of God. A second way that we have flawed thinking about rest is we think that worry is exempt from this conversation. That people who can't stop worrying about things, well, it's not a, it's not a rest problem. It's not a problem with you know, work and rest and finding balance. It's exempt from all that. It's a, it's a virtue to worry after all. Well, actually, worry goes against rest. And our theology of rest will bring this about. A third way that we have flawed thinking about rest is that little phrase that some people will say is, I don't need rest, or I don't need much rest. And we see this all over the world. For instance, the CEO of Fiat, that car company, that European car company, he gets four hours of sleep a night, he says. Um, the CEO of Pepsi says the same thing, just needs four hours. Our president says three to four hours a night. And if you look at his timestamps on his tweets, you'll see that he's up all hours of the night. People will say, I don't need rest. Well, that's flawed. And the fourth one, which I think the vast majority of us would fall into this category, is we think that rest is non-spiritual. It's not a spiritual issue. You could say that rest is a-spiritual. It has nothing to do with, with scriptures, with Christian living. It's just you, you fall asleep at night, you wake up, whatever. Rest is not spiritual. That's just another flawed way of thinking about rest. And all of these ways of thinking are just fruits of the same root. They aren't roots in and of themselves. They're fruits of something. It's our flawed desires. Have you noticed that we're born into this world craving sugar and not Brussels sprouts? <laughs> There's something wrong with our desires, isn't there? That granulated processed stuff. Give me more of that. And this thing that God made, ew, right? That's just naturally how we desire and think. So even with something like rest, we have to reorient our minds based on the Word of God and understand what God has said. Our flawed thinking comes from our flawed desires. And if we look at Scripture, we see that the initial umbrella supreme flawed desire that we have is the desire for autonomy. Here we are getting ready to celebrate Independence Day this week. And did you know that independence from God is the original sin? 
What did Lucifer want? What did Satan want as an anointed cherub, an angel? I'll make myself like the Most High, pursuing his own independence from God. And what did Adam and Eve want when they took of the fruit? Pursuing independence out from under God's commands that they might be able to set their own worldview and to have their own way of thinking. The original sin is autonomy. And we want that autonomy in our willing and in our thinking and in our living. Our desires, our thoughts, and the way that we live our life, we want total freedom in our natural state. We want freedom from God in those ways. We want to make our own rules. So in every area of life, in our natural state, again, we fight against God's design for us. We are born fighting against God's design and to have cravings that are not good, cravings that are fallen. And we see effects of this no matter what area of life. I mean, we're talking about rest, of course, but you can throw any topic in there marriage, relationships, church, whatever it may be, don't we see the effects of this in so many ways? Physically, intellectually, emotionally, morally, spiritually, there are effects. Our fallen desires have profound effects on our lives. And that includes the area of rest. Haven't you noticed that you're different intellectually when you're tired? You're a little bit different spiritually when you're tired. Some of you have fallen morally when you've been tired. It's a human weakness that we have to grapple with and understand how God would have us to find balance as we build our theology of rest. We have to figure this out because we live in a world that pulls us toward two ditches, don't we? You have the one ditch of work, 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 worry, 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 constantly going, going, going in your mind, never getting rest. And then you have the other ditch that says, don't take on any responsibility, don't care, let it all go. We need to find balance between those two things. Those are both bad places to be. And God has designed us a certain way. He didn't design us for either one of these. He designed us to work and to relax. He designed us to work and to rest, to create, and to rest from creating. And God's Word says very much about rest. And like all of our beliefs, again, they have to be founded on the Scriptures. Because if we have beliefs that aren't founded on the Scriptures, we're just talking about opinions, aren't we? They have to be founded on the Word of God, a biblical foundation. So for that, let's turn to Genesis 2. Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at the first three verses together. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Genesis 1, of course, is full of God's creation over six days. He created all things in the heavens and on the earth. He created the heavens. He created the earth. And then He filled them with things that He created. And He said it was good. It was all good. And then comes the seventh day. Don't ever say you're a seven-day creationist, by the way. Say you're a six-day creationist. Because He didn't create on the seventh day. Look at what it says. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. 
By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work, which God had all his work, which God had created and made. Now, this is an interesting event. God would rest because if you have good theology, well, if you have even close to good theology, you know that God doesn't need to rest, right? God doesn't run out of breath. God doesn't need a Gatorade. God doesn't get tired in his muscles, his bones don't ache. None of that stuff like, like us. So when we see that God rested, it's really remarkable that he would do such a thing. One who never needs rest, rested. What do we make of that? Well, I think there are two things we can learn just from the get-go. We're going to see it develop through the Scriptures. But the first thing that we need to notice is that rest here is a pre-fall ideal. Notice that rest doesn't come in after the fall of Adam and Eve. But here is rest nestled in the Scriptures before Genesis 3. And there's, there's not a lot of room before Genesis 3. There are only a few things that can get squeezed in in those first two chapters before the fall. And everything that we see in those first two chapters before the fall means it's the way it's supposed to be. You'll go reading in the Scriptures and you'll read about the kings in Israel and the prophets and everything else and you'll see all kinds of things the way they're not supposed to be because those narratives come after Genesis 3. But the narrative that we have in the first two chapters of the Bible shows us how things are supposed to be. And rest is good. Rest is a part of God's perfect plan. God, God designed rest. It didn't come in after sin, but it's there before sin. And we also see in this passage, and I'll explain after I say it, we also see in this passage that God is setting a pattern for man. A pattern for man. And this was a rest that man could enjoy then thoroughly. Man could enjoy rest before the fall supremely, completely, exhaustively. That's kind of a funny adverb to use for rest, exhaustive rest. They could use, he could enjoy rest completely. And then after the fall, man's relationship with rest becomes a pursuit. But before the fall, he had it, he had rest. Because God rested and gave it to man. And then after the fall, rest becomes a pursuit. Now I say this is a pattern for man because of Genesis 1. Turn back a page if you need to, to chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, looking at verse 26. We see in chapter 2, God's rest on the seventh day. And we see in the few verses before that, God's design for mankind. God himself rested and it's tied to his design for man. Pick up with me in verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 
God created man in his image. Therefore, man is to imitate God, and that includes rest. We have this example of God's rest coming right on the heels of these verses where man is created in God's image, meaning man is to reflect God and how he lives. And let me give you a definition. If you've got your notes there, there are some blanks for you to fill in. This is what the image of God means. It means that man is uniquely designed with the ability to reflect and represent God in willing, thinking, and living. Man is uniquely designed with the ability to reflect and represent God in willing, thinking, and living. Therefore, knowing those verses, we see God's rest on the seventh day and understand that bearing the image of God means that man is to rest. God is setting a pattern for man. That man in his imitation is reflecting his representation of God. He is supposed to rest. And we see this both before the fall and after the fall. That man is to rest as a part of his godly imitation. Now, you remember what I just said a few moments ago, I hope. I hope. It's only been literally like seven minutes. In the fall, that original sin, our desire for independence, our desire for our autonomy... It was in those areas of willing and thinking and living. We want independence in those areas. But the image of God that God has given us is that we would reflect and represent Him in willing and thinking and living. And so now our relationship with rest, just like our relationship with everything else, becomes a struggle. It becomes a battle for the mind, for the soul. But we have to understand from the Word of God that God made a day of rest for man, for him to enjoy it. Just as God rested from his works, man was created to rest and to enjoy rest and a break from his work. If you think about the book of Genesis, consider how God worked in man's rest. How did Eve come about? Well, Adam had to sleep first, didn't he? Adam goes to sleep and out of his side, Eve is formed. That's like the greatest thing that's ever happened from a man taking a nap, right? (laughs) He got a wife. What about Abram? It says a great sleep fell upon him. And the covenant that God made with him was renewed when the fire passed through the pieces of the animals and the covenant was made for his children and his children's children. God was doing a great work in Abram's sleep, wasn't he? About Jacob. Remember his ladder? It's a dream while he was asleep. His son Joseph had a pretty impressive dream too, didn't he, that God gave him. And he went off and told his brothers. You see how in Genesis God works in man's rest? God is the one who takes care of man and communicates to man and he uses rest. So we've seen God's rest on the seventh day, God's design for man, but let's see God's command for Israel. Turn to the book of Exodus with me. Exodus chapter 12. Amazingly, nearly shockingly, this is the next place in Scripture that we see reference to the seventh day. We have in Genesis 2, on the seventh day, God rested. 
And the next place we see a reference to the seventh day is here in Exodus chapter 12, when Israel was told how to prepare the Passover celebration, the Passover memorial. God's command for Israel concerning the seventh day starts up again here, looking at verse 14. Exodus 12, starting in verse 14. God's explaining the Passover lamb and the meal that's to accompany it, the Passover cedar, you've heard of it, I'm sure. And look at what he says, starting in verse 14. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person that alone may be prepared by you. There's the next reference to the seventh day. On that seventh day, there's to be no work except consuming that which is to be prepared. Now turn with me to chapter 16. This is going to be a bit of a tour of the book of Exodus concerning Sabbath. Chapter 16, starting at verse 22. Now this is a profound thing. I... In many ways, I don't know what to make of it. But there's a lot there that we can understand and learn from. If you know your Bible and where chapters are, you know that Exodus 16 is before the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are found in Exodus 20. Exodus 16 is a great deal before that. And we see the word Sabbath mentioned here. Interesting. Starting at verse 22. This is when the Israelites were on the road and God provide them, provided for them manna, manna from heaven for them to collect and eat. And God gives them instructions about this collection. He says in verse 22, Now on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will, uh, bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning as Moses had ordered and it did not become foul nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now, Look at what he just said. See if this is confusing to you. Verse 25, eat it today. Today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Is that, is that tough? 27, it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, Yahweh, the Lord, has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. God gives them a day of rest. 
the seventh day. And it was something that Israel was to observe even before the Ten Commandments. Here it is, clear as day. Now you'll notice in verse 28 that it says that this is a command. God asks them, how long are you going to abuse my commands, refuse my instructions? So it's a command. But now look at the language in verse 29. It's a gift. The Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, He gives you bread for two days. It's a command, but it's a gift. It's not something that's painful to follow. It's a gift from God. It's not a difficulty. But remember, it's a pre-fall ideal. God rested on the seventh day before they took of the fruit and ate and sin entered the world. This is something that existed in God's perfect design. So it's a pre-fall ideal and it continues as a pursuit on this side of the fall. Like I said earlier, our relationship with rest now is a pursuit. We struggle with it. We want to get it. We have such a hard time finding it. We wrestle with it. But it's God's design. It's a command for Israel. Sabbath observance is a command. A couple pages over to chapter 20. This is where the Ten Commandments are given to Israel and the Sabbath is right there in the middle of them. Verse 8, Exodus 20, starting in verse 8. God said to Israel, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We see the connection here right back to creation, understanding that what God was doing was setting a pattern for man. He created in six days because he wanted to. He rested on the seventh day because he wanted to. All a part of his perfect design. He didn't have to take six days to create. He could have created in six milliseconds. He, he didn't have to create in six days. He could have created in 600 days. But God decided to create in six days to rest on the seventh, to consecrate it, call it holy, call it the Sabbath, and then give that to man as his week to live in. We're reflecting God in the way that we live, and Israel was to observe the Sabbath as a command for them. They were to experience six days of creation and recreation. You ever think about that word, recreation? Recreation. They were to experience six days of it, enjoying what God has given them. And then the seventh day, one day of the week, they were to observe the Sabbath, reflecting God in their living, reflecting the image of God and how they went about their week. Isn't it an amazing thing? Just living, reflecting the image of God, pursuing rest and seeking after that pre-fall ideal to seek after Eden, the rest that God designed. Now, this command of Sabbath observance has caused a lot of conversation in church history because you read through the Old Testament and God's pretty serious about it. 
Turn with me to chapter 31, Exodus 31. Look at what God has to say about observing this Sabbath. It's not a lighthearted thing. It's a very critical thing. Exodus 31, we'll start in verse 12. Look at verses 12 to 17. Exodus 31, starting in verse 12, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Chapter 35, verses 2 and 3 says this, For six days' work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. And then a specific example in verse 3, you shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Wow, God takes it very seriously. What do we make of that? Well, the sons of Israel were to observe it religiously. They were to observe it week in and week out carefully, understanding it as a command from God because it was a sign of the covenant between who and who? Verse or chapter 31 said it was a sign of the covenant between Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the children of Israel. I'm thankful I'm not a child of Israel. I'm thankful that I've been redeemed and placed into the church. Now, would it have been a blessed thing to have been in Israel? Certainly. Just like it's a blessed thing to breathe no matter where you are. However, I'm thankful that I didn't have to think about all of these laws, including this Sabbath observance, in my daily living. Because those who worked on the Sabbath, what was the penalty? It says multiple times, put to death. The death penalty for not observing the Sabbath. And if we think about Israel's history, the Sabbath year was every seventh year. After six years would go by, there would be a full year called the Sabbath. And there would be all kinds of special things that would happen in Israel as far as debts being forgiven and whatnot. And then after seven sets of seven, you had the year of Jubilee. It was like the ultimate Sabbath year. And the year of Jubilee, no one was to do work all year. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine living in Israel and dying, just barely missing out, being born right after a Jubilee year and dying right before a Jubilee year? Never got my year off. But God, in His design, has made man to rest. We see that in the way He gave commands to Israel. 
He didn't give it to them just because they were to be different. He also gave them commands to rest because that's how he made all people. And with Israel, they had a specific way they were supposed to show the Sabbath and to show rest. Today, there are some Jews, it's becoming a a smaller and smaller number, but there are some Jews today who still take Sabbath very, very seriously. Uh, And we'll, here in a moment, look at the wrong way they took it. Uh, But they keep adding rules. They keep having to develop what's kosher, what's not kosher, what's breaking the Sabbath, what's keeping the Sabbath. Uh, Dean was telling me about a Sabbath feature on his refrigerator, which I did not know existed. But manufacturers make Sabbath modes for appliances so that they won't actually have to use any electricity on the Sabbath. Or that they won't make the refrigerator work during the Sabbath. There's a mode to get around that. There are loopholes. There are ways to cut those corners. So they can still say, many of them, if not all of them, in total pride, I have kept the Sabbath. Wow. It is a serious thing as we read in the Word of God, but what we also see in the Word of God is that it's a gift for man. It was a command for Israel, but it's a gift to all men. Turn with me to Mark chapter 2. This is where you'll finish in your flipping of Scripture today. Mark chapter 2. Now, as image bearers of God, we are uniquely suited to enjoy work and to enjoy rest. Think of any, any other of God's creation. Can they enjoy work and rest like we can? Ask your local neighborhood cat. <laughs> Ask an angel. Don't do that. Don't pray to angels. But um, when you think about angels, you think about animals, all these things that God created that have life in them. None of those things are able to understand work and rest like we can. And that's a part of the image because we see from Genesis 1 and 2, God worked and God rested, didn't He? And so there's a gift in this, a design in this for all people, not just Israelites, but for all people. God has given us rest to enjoy. And I hope you guys are finding time to enjoy rest. Not during the sermon, of course, but at other times. The prime Old Covenant example, of course, was the Sabbath. But let's see what Jesus taught about this. Starting in verse 23, this is what Jerry read for us at the start of the service. Mark 2, starting in verse 23. It says, And it happened that Jesus was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and His disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to Him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests? And he also gave it to those who were with him? Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now the first thing to see, the primary thing to see in this passage is that Jesus is sovereign over all the days of the week. (laughs) That's the primary thing that we get out of this passage I don't want you to miss. Jesus concludes with, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So this text is meant to lift you as far as thinking of Jesus higher, to lift 
Jesus in your minds, to put him high and exalted on the throne that Jesus is Lord God, even of the Sabbath. That's the primary thing to see. But let's talk about the Sabbath specifically in this context. The the Pharisees came along and said, look, it's not lawful for your disciples. And notice how they're, they're not saying those guys. They're including Jesus in the infraction here. They're saying it's your disciples who are doing this. It's not lawful for them to be plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Now, plucking heads of grain was totally fine. We saw it in Deuteronomy. Farmers in Israel, they were to leave those heads of grain for people to pass by. It's a good thing. But the problem that they had was that they were doing it on the Sabbath. And there's no place you can go in Scripture to see you can't pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath. What the Pharisees did so often is they saw the fence that God built. And we read about the Sabbath fence that said, if anybody works on the Sabbath, he's to be put to death. That's the fence. Now they said, what can we do to make sure we don't get close to the fence? Let's build, build a fence a little more in here. Uh, six, let's go six feet in and build another fence. And, and that one will say, um, you can't you know, uh, walk a certain number of steps on the Sabbath. That's another one they had in the Mishnah. You can't walk a certain number of steps. It has to be under this amount of steps. That way we know you're not getting close to that fence that says don't work. Well, let's build another one. What about eating and drinking? Well, it does take effort to pull those grain heads, so let's go another six feet just to be sure. And let's say if you're plucking heads of grain, then you're working on the Sabbath. That's not lawful. So they went in. And that's what they did with everything. That's why they're called Pharisees. That's why we say that word Pharisees. They're just zealous for the law and zealous for their own laws, tithing their mint and their dill and their cumin. And they came in with these fences and they looked at Jesus' disciples and they said, your disciples are not doing what is lawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus' main teaching is, you're not God, I am. That's his teaching in this passage. I determine what's lawful, not you. But he gives them this phrase in verse 26, or in verse 27 rather, that says the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Here we see God's heart in providing this Sabbath rest for mankind. God's heart was a provision for man, to provide a gift to man. Edmund Hebert, who wrote a commentary on the book of Mark, says this about this verse. The Sabbath was instituted for the benefit of man, hence the application of the Sabbath law must be elastic to assume that man's welfare is promoted. I like that. It's where God has given room, you give room to promote the welfare of man. He goes on to say, the minute arbitrary regulations of the Pharisees made man the slave of the Sabbath, making its observance a burden rather than a blessing. Their binding traditions tended to nullify God's gracious purpose in giving the Sabbath to man. Say you were uh, an engineer at an appliance manufacturer. Figuring out a Sabbath mode for an appliance so that it was right in step with the latest opinions on what's kosher and what's not, doesn't that make you a slave to the Sabbath? Doesn't that make the Sabbath more of a burden than a blessing? It's what we see in the Pharisees. It's what we see today. Last thing from Edmund Hebert, he said, The institution of the Sabbath requiring a periodic day of rest has been an inestimable boon to mankind. 
It was a gift that afforded man not only physical rest, but also refreshment in spirit and raising his thoughts above his daily labors. It's a great quote. The Sabbath was given to man as a gift, as a blessing to enjoy, to promote welfare among mankind. And where it's been practiced rightly, it's been that. It has been that. You think of even just like accidental ways of practicing it. So many people grew up in, a, in an America where Sunday was just the off day, especially before the 20th century, where you didn't go anywhere uh, besides church on Sunday. Stores weren't open. Places weren't open. You didn't go home and watch something to have your mind be buzzed full of something on the seventh day. But even just accidentally or coincidentally, people grew up with that type of a pattern for their week. And I think we would have to say from an objective perspective, that was healthy. Breaks are healthy. <laughs> Getting rest is healthy. Now, we're, next week, I'm going to go into more detail about what we believe about observing and Lord's Day and all that stuff. But just from a scientific standpoint, isn't it good to take a break and get rest and to pause and to meditate and to think about God's goodness and just enjoy it? So we see that Sabbath observance, well, that was a command for Israel. But rest truly is a gift to all people. Sabbath observance was a command for Israel. It was a gift, yet it was also a command. Because if they broke it, it's a death penalty. And yet we see that God gives a gift of rest to all people. That if it's taken and enjoyed, that God does an amazing work in their lives to promote the welfare of mankind. And for the Christian, this is an amazing thing. For the believer in Jesus Christ, do you know what rest ultimately is? It's an illustration of our salvation. What better illustration than sleep exists to show what salvation is like? You know what the ultimate rest in life is? To cease from righteous works, to earn favor with God. The ultimate rest is to cease from this idea that you have to earn God's approval. But to recognize that it's all done in Jesus, you can now enter a spiritual rest that is unlike any other rest that you could have in this life. You can enter into Jesus's rest. And ultimately, all gospel believers are resting perpetually because of the works of Christ done for us. We are totally, thoroughly resting. There is no better way to illustrate salvation, to illustrate the fact that you know God through the cross than to rest. Some of us, by the way we refuse to rest, may be showing others that we don't actually have that much faith. When we recognize God's goodness, God's provisions, and God's salvation. He gives you rest. Come to me, weary and heavy laden, Jesus said. And I'll give you more work to do. Come to me if you're worn out. And I'll give you a long list of things to be anxious about. He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. We have rest in the gospel. And we illustrate that when we are able, 
with clear conscience to rest physically. It's not like our spiritual life exists apart from our physical life. The two are intertwined. You can't get away from that. They respond to one another. And when our heart is at rest, that's why I wanted to sing that song this morning, Quiet My Restless Heart. When our hearts are at rest and we truly, thoroughly trust God, it shows up in the way that we live. It does. You can't say you thoroughly trust God and then can't sleep a wink at night because you're worried about everything in the world. Be anxious for nothing, Jesus said. And rely on Him. The rest that God provides. When I first became a believer and I was studying theology, uh, there was a, a guy I really liked to listen to who, whose name I won't mention uh, from right here anyway. Uh, and uh, he used to say, preach like an Arminian, sleep like a Calvinist. Well, who are the theology nerds? Uh, giggle, giggle, giggle. Um, Arminians believe that everyone has total free choice. And so preach like an Arminian means go out and preach like all the people hearing you are totally, possibly, in that moment, going to turn to Christ. Preach that way. And Calvinists believe that God chooses particular people to be saved because of His total sovereignty in all things in the world. His total control over all things and His, his ordaining of all things in the world. And so sleep that way. Meaning, go preach. Giving your life up. Just like, go, go, go. Lay it all out on the floor. But when you go home, sleep, because God's in control of all things. He ordains all things that come to pass. And this is really explained in Hebrews. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it from the screen. And this is where we're going to start next week as we begin our descent from this study. Hebrews 4. We'll just get a taste of it this week. The writer to the Hebrews said, Therefore, let us fear... If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Verse 4, For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And I'll drop down to verse 8. Hebrews 4, 8-11. through 11. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. When we enter into this spiritual rest that God provides for us through the gospel message, we cease from our works just like God ceased from his. And we'll talk about the implications of that next week. Okay? Good. Thanks for being so attentive, hanging in there. Thanks for not demonstrating rest in the middle of the sermon on rest. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, again, we're thankful. You have designed us. You've provided for us. You've sustained us. Thank you. Give us a better understanding of what it means to be at rest, that we would truly be able to uh, put our minds at ease in Christ, knowing that He is Lord and He is Lord of the Sabbath. 
God, give us uh, just a sweet rest of our day today that as we go about our Sunday, leaving the fellowship here, that we would continually be encouraged by your spirit in our hearts, renewing our minds, causing us to be conformed to the image of our Savior Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.